Joining us now in the second half of the hour, one of my favorite guests ever, Colonel Cedric Layton, founder and president of Cedric Layton Associates, a strategic excuse me, risk and leadership consultancy serving global companies and organizations. And he founded that company in 2010 after serving in the U.S. Air Force for 26 years as an intelligence officer and attaining the rank of colonel. He's held assignments all around the world and at every level of command to include tactical deployed units, the U.S. Special Ops Command, national agencies, as well as the joint staff in the Pentagon. More than a pleasure to have back on the program, Colonel Cedric Layton. Colonel Layton, uh, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us. Can I ask, where are you in the world today? <laughs> <laughs> well, Leslie, it's good to be with you. I'm actually in D.C. right now, so not too far from home. Uh, I would say belated Happy New Year, but I know you were on the program at the beginning of the year, January uh, 7th. Uh, the president seems to be changing his tune on permission to fight ISIS, but definitely not making it his decision, putting it in the hands of Congress. Colonel, with all of your experience uh, in the military, in the Air Force, working in Special Ops Command and working with the Joint Staff in the Pentagon, is it time for boots on the ground? There are people that say that our airstrikes are not successful, yet I constantly see death toll of of ISIS uh, in Syria and Iraq. However, we also see the large swath of territory that they seem to have control over in both of those countries? Well, that's, those are great questions, and it really gets to the fundamental aspect, Leslie, of you know what, uh, what strategy do we want to employ here? So in the case of uh, you know, our fight against ISIS, I think one of the mistakes that we're making is that we are actually looking at uh, the problem of ISIS in Syria and the problem of ISIS in Iraq as two separate problems when they're really one and the same. And, you know, ISIS doesn't recognize those borders, and we should look at uh, what ISIS is doing in our response to that. So as far as boots on the ground are concerned, I think it may be time to, at the very least, not put them off the table. So what I mean by that is uh, they have to be prepared. We have to be prepared for something like that. We have to do everything in our power to avoid them having to be on the ground, our U.S. troops, U.S. boots on the ground. Uh, the Kurds have done a very good job, uh, you know, given their limited resources in actually being able to, uh, you know, take uh, over the peers that they've been able to take over Kobani again, you know, that town on the Turkish border, uh, on the Syrian-Turkish border. So there, there are certainly, there's certainly some progress that's being made there. But it's, uh, you know, if we want to get this over with quickly, uh, we wouldn't be able to do it unless uh, we have a concerted effort. And that means somebody's boots on the ground uh, and somebody who has connection, you know, to us from an air power standpoint and who can uh, talk to, uh, you know, the, the tactical needs as well as the strategic needs of uh, forces that are on the ground. It doesn't necessarily mean U.S. forces, but it does mean an integrated approach, and I don't see that happening right now. Uh, let's uh, talk about what the president specifically uh, requested. He, he said he now needs an authorization for the use of military force, which is an AUMF, as you know. Um, two things here. One, why does he, quote, now need this? And two, does an AUMF necessarily mean boots on the ground? 
No, and AUMF, to take the, the last question first, the last part of the question first, the AUMF does not require uh, boots to be in place on the ground. In fact, an authorization to use military force could prohibit the use of boots on the ground. And one of the, uh, the uh, current resolution that uh, one Democratic congressman proposed was, is one that uh, would actually prohibit uh, putting boots on the ground. Uh, I think, uh, you know, in this case, we have to be very careful that we don't tie our hands needlessly. So that's that's the real problem is, uh, you know, whether or not uh, we telegraph our intentions. It, you know, it's certainly noble not to have, uh, you know, a, a complete uh, full force, full-throated approach like, let's say, we did in Iraq or something like that. Uh, but on the other hand, we have to be very careful that we uh, not telegraph our intentions to the enemy and keep them guessing. So that's, that's I think, where, you know, there are the political calculations and then there's the strategic calculation. And that, uh, that is where it's very hard to bridge the gap. And as far as the president you know, requesting an AUMF at this juncture, I think, uh, you know, in the ideal world, we'd all be looking at this and saying every time that there is a requirement to use the military, there has to be some degree of congressional authorization. Uh, the current War Powers Resolution, which was passed in the early 1970s, uh, allows for there to be 60 days of sustained effort, sustained combat before Congress gives its permission or before Congress has to be asked for its permission. Uh, so we've definitely exceeded that limit. So he may be looking at that saying, yeah, I better, I better get uh, our authorization to do this. Uh, or he may have decided that the authorization to use military force that happened in the wake of 9-11, which he cited as being the authorization that he needs to do this, is actually for a different time and different purpose, which is very similar to what Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia has said. He basically says different time and place, and now it's time to actually do something uh, that specifically deals with the ISIS threat. And I would agree that it's time to do that. I think it is time to do that, and I think it is necessary uh, to get both of the, you know, these two major branches of government on the same sheet, or at least as much as possible on the same sheet, when it comes to uh, you know our national security and this specific aspect of our national security. Under the War Powers Resolution of 73, the president can send U.S. forces into a conflict, uh, in this case, airstrikes. Uh, those hostilities have to end after 60 days unless Congress have been given specific authorization so that people understand it's not just that he's handing this uh, decision over to Congress. It's that he has to do to a time frame uh, with regard to airstrikes. One. Two. This is not an area where left and right really disagree, is it? I mean, I think both Democrats and Republicans agree that we have to do something uh, to address ISIS. And then, sorry, Colonel Three, but haven't the airstrikes been specifically uh, addressing uh, and, and ISIS, or is it just not specific enough? Well, I think the airstrikes have been very effective to the extent that they've been been conducted against ISIS. So, for example, we see the fact that uh, the Kurds have, um, you know, gone after uh, Kobani and been, uh, as far as we can tell, uh, pretty successful in getting Kobani back uh, from ISIS. And that's a major deal. Uh, that that in itself is a major deal. The other part of it is that when you look at uh, Iraq, uh, they have, to some extent, the airstrikes have, to some extent, stymied or, or stopped the advance of ISIS, at least the direct advance. Uh, what they haven't done yet 
is completely rolled back ISIS. So ISIS is still in Mosul, for example, which is Iraq's second largest city. And uh, that's going to be a very tough area to uh, to get into. It will require a major military operation in order to, uh, you know, basically liberate to that city from ISIS. Uh, so there are, there are things that airstrikes can do and they can do very, very well. Um, from a tactical perspective, they've been effective. Uh, they have also been effective in the sense that they have... Uh, gone after uh, a large portion of ISIS's leadership, uh, and that's a key a key factor. And we tend to you know, like the idea of decapitating the leadership, but the one ca- uh, caveat there is that they can grow new leaders. They may be less experienced, they may be less capable than the original leaders, or less charismatic, perhaps. Uh, but there's always a danger that somebody who is charismatic can you know come back through uh, the ranks and take over at a particular crit- particularly critical point. Uh, so. There are so many things that uh, that can happen, and airstrikes are a, a significant component, uh, but uh, there are still a, a lot of issues to be fixed before we can even begin to think of rolling back ISIS. Uh, and, and, and speaking of, I mean, there's so much here. So uh, would, in fact, because, you know, there are people that are tweeting that, you know, Congress isn't going to do this, Congress isn't going to be on board, but they have to, don't they? I mean, don't they have to be on board? Isn't it their responsibility uh, in uh, their their position? I mean, um, Virginia Senator uh, Tim Kaine is not necessarily in agreement with some of the uh, other Democrats, right? That's right. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, like you said earlier, there is a, a certain area where uh, the, you know, elements of the Republican Party and elements of the Democratic Party are in absolute agreement. They know that they ha- we have to do something against uh, ISIS. Uh, we, I think, all, all, you know, moderates in both parties uh, see this as a really fundamental national security issue. And they believe that if ISIS were left un- Unchecked, that it would threaten stability not only in the Middle East but also on NATO's southern flank, especially you know in Turkey and you know when you get into the Caucasus right. region and, and those areas. So there are there's a, a real geostrategic geopolitical reason uh, to thwart that. So I would say that yes, both Democrats and Republicans uh, know that something has to be done, and that's where uh, you know the beauty of our system, if it's used right, is that we have that debate and we in essence say, okay, it is time to uh, actually authorize military force with these specific objectives. And that's, I think, what uh, both sides can agree. You know, and also the president saying, like he, like he said, is I have the authorization for this. I need Congress to be on board. You know, Colonel, we, we both know that with things, whether it's immigration or health care, that sometimes politics comes first uh, before the best interest of the American people. Uh, this, in this case, this isn't just the interest of the American people, but can also be in the best interest of humanity uh, and peace um, and stability throughout the world, as you just uh, referenced. Absolutely. Is, do you do you think that there are people that are still playing? That are are there people in your honest opinion, left or right, that are playing politics with this decision, or is this an area where they really are putting their politics aside because they realize the severity uh, of this issue and of this organization, ISIS? 
I think I think it's a, it really depends on the specific individuals. I think there's some people on both sides of the aisle that will play politics no matter what the issue is, uh, and that's you know in many cases very unfortunate. Um, but there are also plenty of people, and Senator Kane would be one of them, uh, who are really looking at this. I believe uh, from the standpoint of uh, the national security imperative, if you know ISIS were to control many different areas, uh, especially critical areas in the Middle East, and if their ideology and their uh, power spread uh, are, are spread beyond their current uh, the current area of influence, that would have a significant impact not only on uh, those specific regions, but it would have a significant impact on the economic stability of uh, Europe, of Asia, and we're talking China there, um, Russia, and of course the United States. So that's I, I think many people are looking at this and they're they're saying, yeah, this is this is an area where uh, we can absolutely uh, you know do something in the interests of the nation and in the interests of the world. So I think in the end, I think in the end, uh, the national security imperative will triumph, and they will uh, come up with something that will allow for us to proceed uh, along a military path. But it will, I think, also and necessarily be coupled with a diplomatic effort. And so if you couple the military and the diplomatic, uh, and that will then be a significant a significant uh, area where that unity that would be shown there uh, would have a tremendous effect. And I think that would be the way to prosecute this uh, this effort against ISIS. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the captives of ISIS, the hostages and how the colonel feels we should deal with that specifically. And we're back. Our guest is Colonel Cedric Layton, founder and president of Cedric Layton Associates. Served 26 years in the U.S. Air Force as an intelligence officer, attaining the rank of colonel. He's had assignments around the world, every level of command. Like I said, tactical deployed units, U.S. Special Ops, national agencies, as well as the Joint Staff in the Pentagon. Colonel, thank you for holding. Welcome back. Let's take some calls before I get to some more questions on ISIS. Uh, let's go to Larry in New Mexico, Line 3. Hi, Larry. Good afternoon. Question question or comment for Colonel Cedric Layton. Yes. Uh, I wanted to know, well, I don't really want to know. I just want to ask. We won't tell the enemy we're going to him and attacking him, of course. That won't be on the news, right? Uh, Colonel, uh, you know, people are fearful about transparency and how much stuff is being leaked. Uh, you know, are we in a sense, you know, saying what we're doing? Are, 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 we, are we being too transparent when it comes to our enemies? I mean, ISIS is out there with a very big social media presence. Absolutely. That's certainly true. And, Larry, you know, if we do it right, we won't tell them that we're coming and we won't tell them when we're coming or how we're coming. Uh, but, uh, you know, and we have this tendency to, you know, want to telegraph a lot of what we're doing. So uh, there is a risk that we might uh, say too much uh, when the time is wrong. And that uh, that could uh, not only compromise uh, lives, but it could also affect the strategic outcome of a mission. So I uh, you know, very cautious. I do hope that, uh, you know, from the special operations perspective, for example, that, uh, you know, if we do something, uh, that we keep it under wraps until it's done. Um, Larry, thank, th- thank you. For yes. the, th- th- Larry, thank you for the call. Um, Colonel, let's talk about the captives, constant hostages. Uh, first of all, how is ISIS getting the, these hostages? I know a lot of people are like Japanese. They're, you know, where are these Japanese people in Syria? And, uh, uh, you know, in uh, in Iraq. Um, so where are they getting these hostages first? And what what is the best way to deal with them? You, you know, Colonel, 
we we have a policy that we don't negotiate with terrorists. We are having a lot of input on Jordan's possible, uh, you know, doing that. Of course, people are mentioning Bergdahl, and we did that, and people are saying, well, that was different because dot, dot, dot. I, I want your professional uh, and expert opinion on this. Um, is it a phrase that is that was coined in a time that is very that didn't have ISIS and hostage taking and beheadings? Does that need to be changed, or does even negotiating with mean bowing to their demands, or does it mean just finding out what they want in order to stop it and going further? What, I mean, can a country just stand by and let one or more of its citizens be beheaded as as the United States and other countries have? Yeah, and, and, you know, you really can't allow that to happen, honestly. So the question is, how, like you said, how do you stop it? Uh, you know, when it comes to uh, negotiating with terrorists or groups like ISIS uh, or the Taliban, uh, there, you know, clearly need to be, you know, if, you, if it's a true negotiation where uh, there are, you're not bowing to their demands, where you're trying to see what they want and trying to see, uh, you know, what you can do to alleviate, you know, it's a, a small, uh, issue, alleviate their concerns like you could potentially do with, say, you know, some of the guerrilla organizations in Latin America, for example. Uh, but these people are a little bit, not a little bit, they are a lot different. Uh, and they are uh, they are very difficult to deal with. They also have changing demands, like you saw uh, you know, before the first Japanese hostage was uh, allegedly beheaded. Um, the demand was for $200 million from the Japanese. Uh, that has uh, since been modified. Uh, they want the release of the Jordanian, or excuse me, Iraqi female terrorist who is in, in Jordanian prison and uh, under the death sentence there. Uh, the Jordanians are clearly amenable to uh, releasing her uh, if they can get proof of life that uh, their pilot is, in fact, still alive, and uh, they would be willing to do that. I think it is a dangerous situation uh, to go in and do that because what the risk is is that if you uh, allow them to dictate ISIS or people like ISIS to dictate uh, their demands and to force your hand politically or diplomatically or even militarily, uh, then you operate from a position of weakness. And I'm just, you know, this is totally uh, without uh, the human emotion, which of course is very, very important, a very important element in this. But from a strategic perspective, uh, you have to be very careful talking to people like this. Uh, I think, uh, you know, in many cases, they're not necessarily rational actors. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, uh, if they're under no pressure, no military pressure, they might be easier to work with in a paradoxical way than they would be if they are under a lot of military pressure. And I think what you see now with ISIS is that they are feeling the effects of the airstrikes uh, to an extent, and that is uh, forcing their um, their hand in, ter- in the terms of how they're demanding things. And as far as how they're getting these hostages, uh, the the Jordanian pilot, of course, was uh, had a malfunction in his aircraft, so he had to eject from his aircraft, and uh, that was pretty, you know, unfortunately, a, an unfortunate occurrence for him, uh, but uh, not without precedent in a war zone. Um, the Japanese uh, gentleman, one of them is, was a security contractor. The other one is uh, a journalist, a freelance journalist, so he was covering the Syrian civil war. And these people go to where the danger is. And uh, just like, uh, you know, many of our soldiers, Marines and and airmen and sailors, uh, they go to where the sound of the guns is. And when you go to where the sounds of the guns 
uh, comes from, then you have a real uh, risk of uh, falling victim to uh, to a group like ISIS. Uh, so it's relatively easy uh, for ISIS to get a hold of people like this. Yeah. And of course, they're doing. Yeah, and they're doing it all the time. Colonel, thank you. Sorry to cut you off. There, we're out of time. Colonel Cedric Lee. You ever hear something and know the world will never be the same? Houston, we have liftoff. We'll wait until you hear this one. Half price coffee. That's right. Get into McDonald's weekdays before 10.30 a.m. for any size premium roast coffee or iced coffee. Both made with 100% Arabica beans, both half the price. Good is brewing. And that's the sound of your morning changing. Limited time only. May not be combined with any offer or combo meal at participating McDonald's.